In the long grass of the neglected orchard, a rabbit sat nervously erect. Welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark Aguanis, and today my co-host is Denise Sutton. Hi, Denise. Hello there. Thanks for having me back once more. No problem. Always a pleasure. Uh, so we've been listening to Terry Nation's Dalek Audio Annual. Yes, absolutely. And this is a, a collection of stories from the uh, from Dal- uh, Terry Nation's Dalek Annuals, which were published in four consecutive years from 1976 to 1979. Uh, did you have any of these books back in the day? I didn't, actually. Um, I mean, I think I looked at them, but neither I or my brother had them. And I guess maybe they did look a bit orientated to the boys rather than the girls. Yeah. I don't know. I sort of had a mental image that they'd be quite not quite my thing. But, uh, um, having heard some of the stories, I think I've been proved a bit wrong with that one. They are quite, um, I think because there's, uh, we're going to talk about the character of Reb Chavron. Um, by all accounts, she's the only female character um, in all four annuals. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, so it probably, it probably went too far wide of the mark with, the, uh, with that. Um, but there's some, some really good stories in there. Apparently they were written by Terry Nation himself. Okay, yeah. Um, and uh, it's believed they're based on ideas he had for an American Dalek TV series that uh, sort of Doctor Who spin-off he was trying to get off the ground in the 70s and that never went anywhere, so he adapted the stories for these annuals. Um, and I think there's some very recognisable Terry Nation Dalek stories things that we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll touch on. Oh, now. yes, yes, <laughs> there's a few um, familiar scenarios that yeah. crop up. But, uh, I think that's that was actually a nice touch because it'll get people to read it, thinking back to the stories and remembering the stories. And of course, at that time, we didn't have videos or DVDs, and there was only the target books weren't fully into their stride at that point. I don't think were they. So, um, you know, that was like something that reminds you of a TV show that you thought you'd probably never see again. Yeah. Yeah, that's it, and, and obviously probably why he thought he could get away with uh, with pilfering his own stories, pilfering ideas from his own stories as well. Well, everybody does that, don't they? I mean, yeah. you you spot familiar elements in everything, from Douglas Adams to uh, Stephen Moffat using a few things from coupling in Doctor Who and things like that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, I've got these annuals. I've um, picked them up, sort of. Uh, kind of car boot sales and second-hand bookshops and stuff when I was a kid. Um, and I only really noticed, that because I think all these stories are from the 1976 and 1977 editions. Yes. Um, and my uh, copies of both of those were previously owned by Samantha Jane Ashby. Uh, okay. Neatly written a name in the front of them. So um, uh, if she's listening, thank you very much for looking after them so well and not doing all the crosswords and things like that. <laughs> Nice one, Samantha. Yeah. So she must have been a bit of a tomboy compared to me. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, she's she obviously got rid of them at some point. Uh, probably, well, probably at least by the nineties when I picked them up. Anyway, uh, so the first story that we get on the discs is Terra Task Force. Oh yes, which is the sort of the the seminal one. It's the the creation of the ADF, the Anti Dalek Force. Um. From the uh, from the 1976 annual, um, read by Nicholas Briggs, voice yes. of the Daleks, and, uh, and and kind of obviously written a lot of Dalek stories in his own right. Yes, he he really uh, owns the character of the Daleks. He really can inhabit them very well. Yeah, he's got a very good understanding of them. Definitely. So we we meet the heroic Joel Shaw, um, who's been on holiday on a remote tropical island in the Venusian Sea called to Mars to the top secret training zone Uh, he's not told anything but has to undergo four weeks of intense training Uh, and then he's called to a meeting with uh, his colleagues Mark Seven and uh, Reb Chavron a beautiful Martian girl Mm, yes we need a mental picture of of these people so um, having seen some of the illustrations from the annuals I have to say if you can just picture Starsky and Hutch 
and the mum from the Brady Bunch. They are in <laughs> double denim. They have the groovy 1970s hairstyles, and they are good to go. Yeah. <laughs> they are very 70s, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's, it's also it's difficult to tell which one is Mark Seven and which one is Joel Shaw. Um, I, th- I thought originally that, uh, Joel is the dark-haired one. I mean, they look identical apart from the hair colour in, in a lot of the pictures. Um, and Mark Seven was the blonde-haired one um, because there's um, a kind of a short bit about Mark Seven, which is the, the second feature on the disc. But then they just seem to be interchangeable when you read through the annuals um, that sometimes they've got dark hair, sometimes they've got blonde hair. So I'm not sure that the illustrators are quite sure which one was which either. No, no. I sort of had um, Mark Seven, who is an android, I sort of figured that the dark-haired one looked a little bit more like an android. Yeah, but then the yeah the illustration where it's um uh, it's it's uh, well it's um Matthew Warthouse reads it out I think doesn't he in the uh, on the disc where he goes through mm. all the different kind of features that the android's got. Uh, but the picture in the annual, which uh, I'm going to take a snap of and put in the show notes, it, it shows him with blonde hair. So that okay. Was, uh, that was where I was originally going from. But then as you, as you read through. There are times when it's sort of Reb and Joel and he has blonde hair. So maybe he just dyes his hair every now and again. Or well, maybe Mark Seven has some um, detachable heads like Wurzel Gummidge. Yeah. <laughs> that's quite possible as well. Yeah. Maybe that's how they fool the Daleks. It's just to uh, keep changing. Oh, yes. My well. cunning disguises. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so Joel and, and Reb are apparently named after Terry Nation's children who were called Joel and Rebecca. Okay. So interesting fact there. Uh, so what what happens is they get called into um, the office of the Supreme Commander and tells them he tells them that he's forming the anti Dalek force or the ADF. Going to be a small commando style unit. Get behind enemy lines and destroy sort of communication centers and bases and things like that. Joel Shaw is given the rank of Space Major. This is another massive. Terry Nationism, isn't it? That everything has space mm. in front of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, that's um, it's not too unusual, is it? I mean, I think um, like when uh, Clara asks the doctor, "Oh, I thought you'd taken me to a space restaurant." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's sleep no more, isn't it? Mm. Um, and the doctor says, "You don't just put space in front of everything, but they do in Terry Nation <laughs> stories." They definitely do, yes. Yes, as a space archaeologist later on, you know, how does that work? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Termination Story is always full of kind of space viruses. And uh, uh, when uh, last week we were talking about um, the Daleks master plan, and there's a bit where they're going to destroy the ship that's got the doctor on, and they say something like, prepare for space annihilation. (laughs) 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 That's great. So yeah, Reb's described as a beautiful Martian girl. Um, but not an ice warrior. She's not like the the Empress of Mars from the uh, from the other Capaldi story. Is she? She's just. It's just kind of like um, a Martian colonist. Yes. So, um, but yes, very nice in a Mrs. Brady sort of way. And they all look yeah. about thirty. So I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. So the setup's quite is quite similar to the Daleks' master plan, um, in that. The, the setup of that is that there's um, uh, you've got all the plants of the solar system who uh, are allies and, and people are born on different ones as colonies and things like that. Because uh, Brett Vian, it says, was born on Mars. Uh, and the plants have different sort of tournaments, space tournaments between themselves and things. So it seems very much like it's set in that time if, if you're trying to sort of mesh it with the, the Doctor Who continuity, such as it is. Um, but I think even if we read about the Daleks' master plan, it seems like Mission to the Unknown and things like that were a bit of a blueprint for a Dalek spin-off series, you know, sort mm. of like kind of Mark Corey and, uh, uh, and, and Brett Vion. They, uh, they decide that their first mission is the ADF, they're going to go and bomb Scarrow, uh, which nobody's done for decades because they've got um, a very elaborate defence mechanism called the Sky Spy um, mm. and missiles. So they have a cunning plan where they uh, they fly towards Scarrow, pretend to be hit by Dalek missiles, and then stage a kind of a fake crash landing, uh, and then kind of shoot their own ship to blow it up so that it looks like there's no survivors once they've landed. 
Yes, I mean, I thought that this is, and all of the stories are, they're quite hard science fiction. And um, the idea of faking the crash landing, I mean, the detail with that, I think a lot of stories would have glossed over that to a certain degree. Mm. Um, you know, what are we going to do? We've got to make it look as if we're dead in the crash. Yeah. So, um yeah, it's um, really a very good start to a story. Um, having to go through that, they managed not to get hurt. Um, so they uh, they have to kind of sneak into the Dalek city uh, to take out the uh, the defence system and the and the missile launch room, which they just about managed. But then the door's locked, uh, and Mark Seven managed to rip the door off with a feat of superhuman strength, mm. um, which surprises them all. Um, and then they blow up the uh, the, the sky spy, uh, mm. but then they're captured by loads of Daleks, and um, Reb is tortured until the bomb the bombing run actually starts. Uh, and then in the in the chaos, they manage to escape. Um, but on the way out, Mark Seven, in attacking some Daleks, gets hit and killed. Yes, because at the time, um, despite his slightly strange name, they haven't figured out that he's not human. Yeah, uh, so the twist at the end is uh, he walks back in alive and, uh, and reveals that he's an android. Although he thinks that they know that all along, don't they? Because uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> all the way they talk about how, how unusually calm he is and, and measured and everything like that. And then we see sort of feats of superhuman strength. And he says he's a Mark Seven totally humanoid robot. Uh, which leads us into the, um, the bit, as I say, with um, Matthew Waterhouse reading out uh, the, the features of a, of a Mark Seven totally humanoid robot. Yes, um, slightly unusual. Yeah. <laughs> yes, um, I mean, uh, I was a bit confused by where some of the body parts are, but uh... yeah, his his compu brain um, is, mm -hmm. is in his chest where the heart would be. Yep, um, and it. Uh, it can locate any piece of required knowledge instantaneously. In human terms, he is a super genius. <laughs> uh, but when you see the picture, it's a proper old-fashioned computer with a sort of a tape that spins around. <laughs> mm. uh, which is great. Yes, he hasn't just got like a little iPhone embedded in his chest. No, no. can you imagine when he's thinking that you can hear this thing rattling around? <laughs> yeah, well, the same thing happens to me sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I thought it was a great start to the um, the sort of the ADF's adventures. Uh, introduces the characters and their sort of their uh, their raison d'être. I mean, it's mm -hmm. pretty much in the name, isn't it? But uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was good, good action-packed story. Very much so. Yes. Uh, and sets it quite apart from Doctor Who, I think, as well. Um, right from the start, it's um, you know Doctor Who stories. With... Yeah, they're lacking in whimsy. Yes. Yeah, it's very much, it's very much, and I think because had there been a spin-off TV series, it was going to be American, and it's much more like American sci-fi, I think, where people are, you know, members of, you know, like a fleet or an organisation or some kind of, some kind of rule-based society or, or whatever. Whereas Doctor Who's just totally independent. Travels around. Yes. What he does. Uh, a maverick character. Yes. Yeah. Not just, following anybody's orders. That's it, and just um, just trying to help out where they can, rather than uh, you know, kind of having a mission, I suppose. Um, and then you know, just kind of beating the Daleks through cleverness, rather than sort of weapons and and, and strength and that kind of thing. So it does just set it apart from that. Then the next story we get is called Exterminate, Exterminate, Exterminate. Yes. So they get a distress signal mm -hmm. uh, which leads them to the planet Omegon mm. uh, recently survived an attack by the Daleks and this one's read by Louise Jameson who I think was chosen because she was the companion uh, sort of in 1976 1977 when these uh, annuals came out uh, and didn't really get to meet the Daleks either on screen so uh, no, uh, no she didn't Quite nice to uh, to kind of give her that, that experience as well. Although I'm sure she's met them on Big Finish in the meantime. 
I, I'm sure she has, yes, and uh, probably did them some quite extreme damage as well. Yeah. In fact, Energy the Daleks, yeah, she met them in that story, which um, I did a podcast with Lawrence about last year. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to that one. Uh, so, yeah, they've, uh, they find some survivors uh, from the attack on Omegon. Um, they're just some, some men who kind of, uh, they're a bit injured, but not too bad. Um, but Joel Shaw, space major, is immediately suspicious because they're not very badly injured and they're not surprised to see the ADF there. Yes, yeah. It's um, set up that, uh, yes, these aren't, they're not all they appear to be. Yeah, they've um, they say that some people uh, some people tried to escape from the Dalek attack, go into the mines, but they've never gone to look for them or anything like that. So uh, mm. it's, it's all a bit suspicious. So they they decide to go off and try and find them. Um, they take the survivors with them, but once they reach the mines, they pull a laser pistol out and uh, and hand the ADF over to the Daleks, which you think all is lost on only their second mission. Mm. Um, but they escape into the tunnels with the Daleks in hot pursuit and find some giant spiders are running around in the tunnels with them. Giant spiders, woo. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> again, that's um, obviously not a, uh, not a Dalek story, but uh, gets people thinking, oh, is it the same giant spiders as uh, in... Yeah, Planet of the Spiders or something yeah. like that, yeah. Yes, <laughs> I dried there completely for a moment. <laughs> it wasn't called Planet of the Spiders, was it? That would be too obvious. And it's like, yes, of course, it was called Planet of the Spiders. Honestly, yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's nice. Um, there's familiar things that are familiar, but they're different context, different use. And, of course, Season 11 had some giant spiders as well, so. Yeah, um, I thought the description was um, was quite kind of nice here as well because I think it's Reb, isn't it, that she says she sort of feels something that's kind of like bristly and and hard, and then it's got like kind of muscle underneath, and then it runs off, and the yeah, and Max Evans says, "Oh, yeah, it's a giant spider." Um, but yeah, that that sort of description of how it felt first, it made it quite creepy. Mm. Yes, this was quite. Um I mean, the prose in, in these stories is, is quite strong. I mean, it refers to the stench of war and things like that. It's, mm. uh, it's, it's actually very well-written stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't pull its punches at times either, does it? Uh, you know, for kind of a kid's book, there's, uh, there's people, mm. uh, a lot of death and, and destruction and, and that kind of thing. Uh, so they run around the mines for a bit Um but wherever they go, the Daleks are right behind them, which is weird because they think they should have lost them. Uh, and then they realise that Reb is carrying a tracker, which um, the survivors kind of slipped into a pocket when they when they met them. So the uh, Mark Seven puts it on the back of a spider, which then uh-huh. and, uh, and the Daleks uh, follow the spider instead and fall down a huge shaft because they're going too fast to see it. <laughs> Which is a good image. The giant spider's leaping over the chasm and the Daleks just plunging down it. Uh, which is quite like the Daleks, isn't it? Um, the idea of sort of chasms and things. There's that long sequence in the first Dalek story where everybody's got to jump over the the chasm. <clears throat> yes. And um, Daleks do fall down big shafts sometimes, like in Dalek Invasion of Earth and uh, in the Dalek films as well. Yeah. Occupational hazard. Mm. That's uh, why they had to learn to fly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so once they uh, once they've done that, they they get back out of the mines and um, they think we'll go and find the rest of the colonists because they're probably being held hostage, and that's why the men that they met um, betrayed them and sort of sold them out to the Daleks. Uh, but they, they find some Daleks have got a huge bomb, which they sort of carry out onto a road uh, and then loudly say, well, we're going to just give up on looking for the ADF. We're just going to leave the planet, set off this huge bomb and destroy the planet instead. Because uh, they've destroyed the ADF ship as well, haven't they? That um, Yes. That was there, so there's no escape for them. And the bomb is made of crantinium, the hardest metal in the universe, so they can't break into it and defuse it or anything like that. All seems lost. Until Mark Seven figures out 
But it's magnetic. Yeah, he remembers that Crantinium is magnetic. So uh, he runs off to the Dalek ship and sticks the bomb to it. And then when it takes off and the Daleks detonate it, uh, it blows up the Dalek ship instead. Which is a really nice description of the explosion, I thought, when they say they could see it from from our solar system, that the explosion was so huge. Uh, and they still feel the blast as well, don't they, on the, on the planet? Mm. Uh, even though the explosion's in space. So it kind of gives a sense of scale. So, yeah, another exciting adventure for the ADF. Yes, and they got out of there. It's a, well, somebody came to pick them up, didn't they, at the end? So they still got home for their tea, all right? Yeah. Um, and they don't even the at the, the end is sort of like they uh, they sort of celebrate for a second and then they go but we've got a water fight come on let's go mm. let's, uh, let's let's get someone to come and pick us up straight back into the action and then the next story we take a little break from the ADF with time chase oh yes <laughs> which unexpectedly starts off with some rabbits yeah so, <laughs> which I didn't see coming to be honest with you and it's quite poetic. Um, talking about with the silence of clouds and yeah. hot summer on a tarmac road and all that sort of thing. Beautifully read by Matthew Waterhouse. Yeah, he does have a very nice voice. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, uh, did this story remind you of anything as well? Um, yes, in passing, once it, once it got into its stride, yeah. yes, it's uh, <laughs> very much so. But um, it's two young schoolboys. Mm-hmm who's, was it an uncle, who's developed a time machine? Well, two time machines, one time machine to go and the other one to go and fetch them back if they get into trouble, which is interesting. Belt and braces. Yep, and the Daleks have detected time technology, so they rock up and they nick one of the ships. And the schoolboys who have stolen the key to the lab and sneaked in there decide that they have to follow so they take out, there's the Mark 1 and the Mark 2, the Daleks steal the Mark 1, and as you say, the um, David and Peter steal the Mark 2 to uh, to chase after them. So um, obviously it's it's a bit like the chase, well it's a lot like the chase, isn't it? But it's mm. kind of the reverse of the chase, because this time it's the Daleks being chased instead of the uh, the, the kind of the good time travellers, I suppose. Yes, yeah, when, um, when the schoolboys first... Uh, first um destination was um in the middle of a battlefield and i wasn't sure it reminded me a little bit of the scenes at the start of the genesis of the daleks but no they were actually back in world war one mm. yeah and this um they, they sort of um each everywhere they land they uh, at least one of the daleks gets killed don't they so this is uh there's a kind of a big push um mm. in the trenches uh so the uh and it, the Dalek inadvertently helps to repel a German advance, um, but one of them gets she gets hit by a tank or something, doesn't it, and, uh, and destroyed. So uh, that's uh, that's one down. Uh, but yeah, I thought it was um, quite an action-packed sequence, and uh, especially as the uh, the boys only just escape at the end because some soldiers lob a grenade at them, which, uh, mm-hmm. which is just just exploding as they dematerialize um and then they land on the marie celeste yes and that's all very familiar of course (laughs) this is probably the most blatant example i think of ever using an idea uh because it's very similar isn't it to uh even you know the the soldiers all get spooked by the daleks and uh, start to jump overboard Um, but that story was kind of over a decade old by this stage and there was no home videos or not much repeating, I guess, of black and white stories. Yes, that's very true. So um, very few of the people reading the story would have seen would have seen the chase or know anything about it, probably. But uh, they would know something possibly about the Marie Celeste. So. Yeah, it's one of those things that's... that's kind of fascinating when you're a kid isn't it kind of uh, unsolved mm. mysteries and stuff like that yes uh, the whole Bermuda Triangle thing and all the rest of it yeah yeah kind of um, yeah when I was a kid I used to love reading about kind of Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and all that kind of stuff uh, so they uh, I like I like the bit the, the kids kind of um, 
the Dalek goes, one of the Daleks has come out and all, all the sails have jumped overboard and the Dalek goes to look at them over the edge and one of the boys runs over and pushes it in the water. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a good mental image. Yeah. Um, and then uh, they uh, they realise the rest of the Daleks are dematerialising again because basically they're, they're just learning how to fly it, aren't they? They're trying to take it back to Scaro, I guess. Um, and then... Uh, they, uh, they, they've dematerialized again, and this time they land in Pompeii just as Mount Vesuvius is erupting. How unlucky are they? I know, yeah, they, they don't just land anywhere quiet where there isn't some huge uh, event of historical import happening. That they <laughs> mm. uh, so this time the, the rest of the Daleks get, get destroyed in Pompeii, uh, and they manage to each pilot one of the time machines home. And then don't even tell their uncle what happened. <laughs> Going no, well, can't really blame them. Yeah, just wondering about. Yeah, it's very low key the whole thing. Like, because the the uncle's just invented time and space travel <laughs> in his shed, mm. um, and he's had a press conference. But it just seems like now the fuss has all died down. This um, this kind of staggering scientific breakthrough. <laughs> um, and he's just one guy who's just smoked a pipe, and he's just an eccentric inventor. So. Well, it's a bit like the uh, the Dalek movies as well, isn't it? Because um, in those ones, it's just Doctor Who who's invented TARDIS and uh, yeah, and so mm. it's kind of in his back garden. Move along, nothing to see here. Yeah, yeah. just uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, nice little story. Yeah, uh, something where um, maybe the younger readers could uh, relate to the schoolboys a little bit more and could imagine having that kind of adventure themselves. Yeah. Yeah, kind of uh, Hardy Boys or something like that style thing. And no pesky girls in that one either. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then um, on the second disc starts with uh, a special report, um, which is read by Nick Briggs again. Um, and it's a, it's a report from Space Major Joel Shaw to uh, Cal Tarrant, who's the... the He's like the president of the solar system or something like that. Yes, any relation of Dal Tarrant? It's, it could well be. Um, it's a, it's mm. a, one of Terry Nation's popular, uh, or kind of most favourite names, isn't it, to have a, a character called Tarrant or Tarrant or mm. something along those lines. Not Chris, though. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's a bit like the Dalek master plan, isn't it? It's only, it's kind of a, not really a full story. It's just sort of a little uh, extract of a, a letter that um, has been written. And uh, it's, uh, it's about as delegates from the outer planets have been seen arriving on Scaro. Um, so just not Kemble this time. But other than that, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of like the report that Mark Corey was sending in uh, mission to the unknown back to Earth, wasn't it? <laughs> And the idea being that if all these outer planets ally themselves with the Daleks, then it'd be a huge army that the humans couldn't stand against. Yes. Mm. So it's just kind of a little uh, a little teaser, really, for the for the ongoing Dalek menace, I guess. Uh, ah, yes. You can never forget. Yeah. Uh, and then we get the Doomsday Machine from the 1977 annual. Yes. I enjoyed that story. Lots of interesting things about in there. That's it. Um, in this one, Joel Shaw looks to be blonde. I've made a note here <laughs> in the uh, in the pictures from the annual. So it could be that he's uh, he's dyed his hair to fool the Daleks by this point. Um, mm. And we get the well. Well, they're not fooled when the Doctor regenerates. They're not going to be fooled <laughs> by a bottle of hydrogen peroxide, are they? <laughs> Unlikely, no. Because uh, we keep being told that they're the, the most advanced race in the universe as well, so you wouldn't think they'd be fooled. Uh, so this one opens in the United Planets Parliament, where the Galactic President Cal Tarrant um, is is giving a speech to celebrate the work of the ADF. And uh, Joel Shaw's going to have to make a speech, but while the uh, thunderous applause is going on, an aid aid arrives from the ADF, and he has to go because there's been an attack on a, an ADF base on the planet Emeron. Uh, which is there's no survivors, and worse mm. still, Mark Seven was there doing a tour of duty. So uh, once they they take they blast off in a chaser rocket to the planet Emeron. Um, first of all, they can't find any bodies. Um, yes. Uh, 
so they, they start to investigate. Um, luckily, they find Mark 7. He's only been deactivated, so they just need to plug him in and give him a recharge. Um, but then they find some shrunken human forms. Ah, uh, yes. And, of course, I was thinking, oh, it's the Master, wasn't I? But uh, that would have been quite a thing. But, no, it's a different miniaturization process, and it's not the miniaturization itself that kills them. No, um, the, the miniaturization was just to stop them from being able to retaliate or defend themselves. And mm. It was the attack that killed them. But yeah, it seems it seems like it's such a, a well-known kind of Doctor Who thing that it was uh, it was odd to see it here, wasn't it, that the Daleks had uh, been working on the the shrinking ray as well. Mm. Although I'm quite pleased that the Master's shrink ray does kill people because can you imagine if uh, Auntie Vanessa's little arms and legs were moving? Yeah. <laughs> In the back of the police car. That would have given me nightmares for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> She'd still been alive. Tegan could have carried around in a... In a handbag. In a handbag, yeah. Didn't she? yeah. What do you think, Annie Vanessa? Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> she could have been useful on some missions. Yes. <laughs> it would have been a slightly different series. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been... Just bring her out every so often like chameleon. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> when the effects budget allowed for it. Yes. <laughs> and she could have got her revenge in Planet of Fire. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, she could have... Uh, <laughs> she could have gone and punched the master, couldn't she, when, uh, when he was shrunk. Uh, so, having found out about the Doomsday Weapon, they head off back to Scarrow, where they, um, they realise that that's where the hangar is because there's been some some digging going around uh, near the Dalek city. Uh, and having analysed the threat, they think that Earth is probably the next target for shrinking. And in which case, um, then, then uh, basically they'd be wiped out because everyone would be shrunk and nobody could fire any missiles back or anything like that. Uh, we get a, a classic um, break-in through a ventilation shaft. Yes. By Joel and Reb. Mm-hmm. Um, and they find the huge rocket. And all of the distances are imperial measures, so you don't walk a kilometre or anything like that. It's a thousand yards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, never, never quite shaken off uh, the imperial measurements. Um, and the uh, the design of the ship, it's um, it's described as um, being a rocket, but covered in glass domes, um, which is, mm-hmm. makes it sound like a big Dalek, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it sounded actually quite pretty, I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, could have been could a good mental image of that one. I thought it was a nice nice idea. Yeah, there's, um, there's, a, there's some pictures of it in the annual as well, and it is, it's quite how you, um, you picture it, I think, with the, uh, with the domes. Uh, so, yeah, so it's a bit like kind of the Dalek skirt, I suppose, with the, with the bumps on as well. Uh, so they managed to get inside the rocket and plant some explosives... But then the ship starts to take off and it's sealed up and they're trapped inside. So they realise that the only way that they can get themselves to escape is uh, if they manage to shrink themselves. Which is, uh, which is very clever. So they, uh, they, they shrink themselves down um, and uh, they're running around, but then they, they realise they're not going to make it. So they stop by a, a sort of a ventilation shaft. It's got hot air running through it, and a small piece of plastic blows by. Um, and uh, Joel comes up with the great plan that they could use that as a sort of a to trap the hot air, and it would pull them along the, the ventilation shaft. Um, so if if anybody's playing uh, Dalek story bingo, uh, this is from <laughs> Planet of the Daleks. Definitely. Seems a little bit more feasible with tiny humans and just two of them. Yes. <laughs> yeah, then it's about four of them, isn't it, in Planet of the Daleks? Four of them, yes. And yeah. it's uh, kind of slow moving. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it was a nice idea. And they, um, they, they shoot out of the vent. Um, the ship blows up. Because uh, the Daleks never know that it was the ADF that blew it up. Uh, they must have just... Guess, I guess they just thought it was some inherent design flaw so they, mm. uh, they don't try and build another one or maybe the, the Daleks that know how to build it were inside it and blew it up 
Uh, so uh, the threat's averted and, and Mark 7 comes and picks them up. Another successful mission. Yeah, the uh, the ADF are absolutely killing it. They, uh... Then we get report from an unknown planet, which is mm. it's sort of an ADF story, but um, it's more the bulk of it is being told to the ADF, isn't it? We uh, we open on a deep space cruiser that happens upon an old satellite and, and picks it up, uh, and then they find a voice recording on it or a fragment of voice recording. They have to clean it up. Um, it's on a high fidelity tape, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's from a space archaeologist. Yes. So the, 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 the message they find, they listen to, they send it straight to uh, Joel Shaw. Uh, and then he listens to it with the rest of the ADF. And then the rest of the story is this, uh, is, it, is it being narrated um, by, uh, but he's sort of a researcher, archaeologist, isn't he, from a university. And he won't say who he is because he's done something a bit silly. Uh, yeah, doesn't want he kind of has. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I thought the weird thing about this is, the this story, um, the narrator, he records his entire story, he's warning the rest of the cosmos about this danger. Um, but he uh, he spends about sort of 20 minutes telling a huge backstory about his job and how he went into space and they didn't have enough food. I think, I'm, given that as you learn at the end, He's in a room where the Daleks are going to find him any minute, and this is his last ditch attempt to warn people. I might have cut straight to the headline: mm. <laughs> ten thousand Daleks. They've got ships, and they are heading out into space now. Um, but he spends all this time talking about you get crash lands on this planet, and he's the only survivor. And he finds some fruit, and the fruit's quite nice. Uh, <laughs> this kind of stuff. And you think the Daleks could have come in at any minute while he was still banging on about fruit. <laughs> they could, couldn't and, they? Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I I enjoyed his story, and I, I mean, the um, descriptions of the planet and the fruits and the rejuvenating effect that they had, it all sounded, uh, all sounded very nice. I mean, it was a good science fiction story, but you're right, the setup of like this is his final recording because he knows he's going to be dead sometime in the next thirty minutes. It's. Uh, <laughs> Perhaps does stretch the credibility a little bit. Yeah, I think maybe I'd have gone straight to the headline, and then um, if I had time, I would have filled in a bit of the backstory to um, to add kind of a bit of credibility to it. But uh, yeah, it was. Uh, or you know, the name of the planet, or what sector you're in, or something yeah. like that. You know, he doesn't know though, does he? Because they um, no. they drift so far off course. They didn't pack enough food for the expedition, um, and then something goes wrong with the ship as well. It's a bit of a disastrous expedition. Really. Yes, yeah, he, not a very successful person. No, no. Um, I really like the way Nick Briggs reads this story, though. He kind of he gives it a bit of a, a the voice of a kind of a fussy academic. Yes, quite like the, of this kind of lost explorer. Um, so yeah, as you say, he wanders around his planet, and it's it's basically it's paradise. There's nobody else there. But the fruit's amazing, and the water makes you younger and heals all your wounds. And it's uh, he thinks it might be paradise, and he finds a temple that's the only remnant of a, an old civilization uh, with these memory cubes. That if you if you pick them up, then they, you sort of they replay history in your mind. So he learns about this fantastic civilization that lived there that were refugees from another planet. But then as time goes on, uh, it's got quite a dark ending because the, the Daleks turned up and enslaved them and uh, forced them to build a big underground storage depot. For yes, it's a kind of a seed bank for Daleks. Yeah. So if they ever, ever all get wiped out, then there's, all, there's this massive 10,000 reserve force Daleks just waiting in this, under the ground in this planet. Yeah, which is a bit like Planet of the Daleks as well, isn't it? Mm. that they've got the big force uh, underground there Uh, but yeah it's it's a really nice story I like the the sort of the exploration of the planet element of it Um, and the sort of the the deepening mystery as it goes on Um, and it's got echoes of Mission to the Unknown as well you've got like the one person recording a warning about Daleks just before they're exterminated in the hope that somebody will hear it um, and, and get the warning in time but yes, again, it ends with um, it's a message that you have to be prepared for a Dalek attack at any time because they'd had no idea when the message was recorded, where the planet is, how far away it is. So um, 
or even presumably whether the Daleks can get off the sh- get off the planet. But, yeah, uh, it does describe some ships coming back up um, out of the ground as well. Um, mm. so it seems like they're going to uh, they're going to be leaving the planet. Uh, but yeah, it's it's kind of a nice story to end the the disc on as well because it's um, it's a bit of a cliffhanger, isn't it? Right yes, the... reminding you that uh, got to stay alert. Yeah. ADF trainees and cadets everywhere. Yeah, yeah. There's some quite nice stuff in these annuals as well as like ADF sort of training things that um, they're basically just puzzles. Um, so uh, there's a sort of spot the differences and that kind of thing. Um, but it's. Uh, it's, it's supposedly so that you can uh, rush up on your ADF training. So it's like a, a spot the difference and there's about sort of six Daleks and you have to see which one isn't the real Dalek and that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> which one isn't the real Dalek? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of good stuff for kids uh, like that. But then it also it ends on another very ominous uh, piece, which is um, Louise Jameson uh, well, and Nick Briggs doing the, the voice of the Daleks. <laughs> Uh, where it's sort of human and Dalek history side by side, mm. um, and uh, you realise that the Daleks are responsible for some uh, for some. It's quite um, Britain centric, though, isn't it? It is a bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Year forty-two, London first formed. Yeah. Daleks up to no good that year as well, you know, and. Um, Daleks causing the Black Death and the Great Fire of London. Yeah, and the sinking of the Titanic. Yeah. <laughs> mm. uh, but it ends very ominously because they, they go up to sort of the 1970s and then they say 1976 uh, and the Dalek bit just doesn't say anything as if as if there's something in the offing. Mm. Well, punk. Were Daleks responsible for punk? Quite possibly. Or, yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> or the drought that happened that year or... Uh, who knows? Yeah. Or there was a uh, invasion of ladybirds as well, massive population explosion of ladybirds. Ah. Was that caused by the Daleks? They were probably some kind of Dalek drawn, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, because they've got a lot Maybe of, they are. They've got spot, um, spots on their wings, haven't they? Yeah, and they've got a hard outer shell. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Mystery solved. Yeah. There we are then. That's what the Daleks were up to in 1976. Yeah. Because uh, that, that's the other thing in that um, the, uh, the 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 previous story, uh, the unknown planet uh, report from an unknown planet, is that um, Nick Briggs is the Dalek voice is in it as well, um, which is odd when you're listening to, or supposedly listening to a recording from the guy, the archaeologist, uh, that he does a perfect Dalek impression as well, just to add add very similitude to his, uh, his story. Mm, yes. Oh, I found some Daleks. Yeah. I've autom- accidentally revived 10,000 Daleks. I'd better work on my impressions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yes, I mean, I did enjoy that story. Yes, it had its silly elements, but mm-hmm. I can imagine as a, uh, you know, someone being given that album, that annual for Christmas, they would get drawn into a story like that, reading it under the covers with a torch. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was that like was that. A... when I was a kid. Yeah, I loved, I loved reading. I still love reading. But you know, when it's like you know, kind of when you're a kid and you're told lights out and everything. Um, mm. But in, in the house I lived in when I was a kid, the um, I had a, there was like a, a window above the door in my bedroom. Um, so my little brother was always scared, so he would have, used to have the landing light on. So if he had the landing light on, it meant there was a shaft of light um, that came over the top of my door, and I could sort of lean and angle out of bed. To, uh, to hold a book and I could, uh, could quite happily read for a bit. So, uh, yeah, that was, I didn't have a torch, but, uh, yeah, I'd always read if I could. Mm, yeah, I was a little bit worse when I got um, a radio for Christmas and it had one of those mono earpieces that you could attach to it, so I would listen to music very, very late at night, and yeah. listening to Golden Oldies shows at 11pm or something <laughs> like that after I should have gone to sleep, but... Uh, I don't think it did me any harm in the long run. No. It gives you a good appreciation of uh, culture, doesn't it, I think? Yeah, yeah, it really does. Um, I mean, it was so fascinating just to learn so much about music just through sneakily listening when you're supposed to be sleeping and, of course, with the reading as well. I mean, I remember I got into quite bad trouble because 
you know, when you're a kid, they have to send you to bed in the summer when it's still daylight. Yeah. And because um, the curtains weren't very thick, if I strained my eyes, I could still read quite, uh, you know, with no light on in the room if it was still light outside. But uh, yeah. I don't think I did my eyesight any good in the long run, but I was absolutely avid reader. Yeah. I think um, I, I never really got into trouble at school. I was always pretty good. But the only time I can ever remember getting into trouble was um, like at primary school when, like, once a week you, you went to the library, you came out of class to go to the library to take a book back and, and pick another one. Um, and I could never wait to start reading it. So I got back to class and was supposed to be doing maths or something. Um, mm. And I would just be uh, <laughs> sneakily reading the book that I just got. Uh, yes, I did once get my copy of The Armageddon Factor confiscated in biology. But, uh, <laughs> that teacher, that teacher had it in for me anyway. So clearly, had no taste. <laughs> the teacher, I mean. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe she wanted me to learn some biology or something. But yeah. I got me A level in the end. You know. Excellent. Yeah, it all turned out okay. Yes. So in your face, Mrs. Dewitt. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I suppose the other um, piece of uh, Dalek news, just today as we record, I don't know if you've seen this on Twitter, uh, Peter Purvis has been tweeting about this and other people. The University of Lancaster um, have been filming a recreation of Mission to the Unknown. Wow. No, I've sort of seen things about Mission to the Unknown and Peter Purvis being banded around, but I haven't sort of dug down into what was going on so wow that's quite a thing yeah it's um well i in if, if anyone listened to last week's podcast i said I'd stop following peter purpose on twitter but i've started again today because <laughs> um i saw him being retweeted about this stuff um and there were some pictures of the delegates you know the, the galactic council uh so i guess i guess the students at the uh the university of lancaster that are playing all the parts um and nicholas briggs was there doing the dalek voices as well Wow, wonderful. So it's semi-official at least. Yeah, um, it looks like it. I know they were saying that hopefully the BBC are going to release it. So, um, yeah. All right, so this is a new twist from um, animating Missing Things. Now they're just going to restage them, like they're restaging some of the old um, Steptoe and Sons and Hancocks and things that have been wiped. Yeah, um, and Big Finish have done that with some of the early Avengers as well, haven't they? Mm. Some, of the, some of the ones that are missing but um no it looks the uh the, the pictures seeing the production values on this look really good so uh hopefully it does get some kind of release that we can uh, we can enjoy it yes i mean there's lots of exciting uh releases us doctor who fans are still quite spoilt really aren't we considering yeah oh, i mean definitely. i've pre-ordered my don't beat me up for pronunciation macra macra terror Macra-tera, yeah so uh, that's on the way, and the Blu-rays of season eighteen and season nineteen. Yeah, it's great. But they're being sent to my mum's house, so I won't get them till April. But, ah. uh, <laughs> yeah, it's exciting that um, yes, everyone's rediscovering the stories again as as the Blu-rays come out. Mm. Um, well, we treated ourselves to a nice TV at Christmas as well, so I'm really looking forward to seeing some classic Who on Blu-ray, and it's probably two of my favourite seasons as well, so I'm really excited and really pleased oh, that they've gone for it with these two. Yeah, um, and it seems like they're just going to keep keep releasing them as well, so it'd be, uh, it's a good chance It'll be to fa- fantastic, them. but uh, going to have to move to a bigger house. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if I can bring myself to part with all those DVDs. Well, this is it, isn't it? It's what, what do you do with, mm. the, with the DVDs? Especially because um, I didn't really ever think they would come out on Blu-ray. So I've got a few of the covers signed as well when I've been at different conventions and things like that. So I'm not going to get rid of those ones. I probably will But this of. is a luxury problem, isn't it? I it mean, is, yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is fantastic, yeah. you know. Forget Brexit, we can just sort of hold ourselves up somewhere and uh, immerse ourselves in our Doctor Who world for a bit. Yes, yeah, there's, there's, we've always got that escaping, escapism, haven't we, that's, uh, that Doctor Who is really good for. Yeah. Mm, definitely, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's a comfort zone for a lot of people, and long may it continue to be so. Definitely, definitely.
I think that's all the notes I've got on on the Dalek annuals. Um, yeah, I I haven't got anything else to say, but um, I imagine they'll be doing a further release of the other annuals. Yeah, even even on the first two, there's um, there's stories that uh, that they haven't covered, um, and I was reading through a couple of them while I've been sort of researching this, and they're just as good. So I'm, I'm sure there'll be another volume, uh, assuming it's sold well enough. Mm. Well, you know, people who, like, you know, we did the podcast last summer as well about the Doctor Who annuals and stuff, and maybe thinking mm. that it's not pure Doctor Who, that it's it's a different version or it's a spin-off or something. Don't let that put you off listening to the stories because they are really, really good and they are interesting and um, some of them are of their time, particularly some of the older Doctor Who ones. But, uh, yeah, they are just as interesting as a new Big Finish story or um, watching a classic story that you haven't seen before. You know, give it a go, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. It's quite nice that it expands the universe as well. It's like Big Finish are doing with, with sort of Missy and River Song and things like that at the moment. It's like their lives don't entirely revolve around meeting with the doctor um you know there are there are other people that are uh, fighting the daleks and the daleks have plans that aren't always thwarted by the same person and things like that so it's yes i mean missy saying yes i have adventures you know she uh, she doesn't just hang around waiting for the doctor to page her she's uh, out there living her own good life so yeah that's it um so yeah it's, it, it is good like that because there's nothing in here that sort of contradicts anything from doctor who it's it's very plausible it's all happening in the same universe, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, again, the Daleks, they're not just waiting for the Doctor to rock up. They're busy hatching their own evil plots all the time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, they, uh, they, they've got some, uh, some corking uh, <laughs> plans in these ones. There's one, um, I, I tweeted about this actually when I was, when I was looking um, through these annuals uh, a few weeks ago. There's one of the stories... If I can find it quickly now, there's a character who looks uh, very much like the young war doctor. I don't know if you okay. saw this when I uh, when I tweeted it out. Like the costume is almost exactly the same, um, and um, even even the sort of the the hairstyle and stuff. It could be uh, it could be sort of a young John Hurt. So I'll uh, I'll put a picture of this on the in the show notes as well. It just kind of makes you wonder if uh, if a young Stephen Moffat read them, and it kind of lodged in his subconscious somewhere when uh, when it came to time to do the the War Doctor, uh, if it fed into the the idea of what he would look like. Hmm, interesting because um, John Hurt that was pre Alien, wasn't it? So uh, yeah, his con- his connection with sci fi wasn't as wasn't established at that point. No. Uh, no, it's a bit more costume-wise, I would say, is uh, mm. similarities. This is, if anyone's got it, it's in the 1978 Dalek Annual, and it's a story called The Castaway. And it's about um, an ADF agent called Ral Shannon, who okay. uh, crash lands on a planet and has to fight some Daleks. Uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll put a picture of that in the show notes as well. I thought it was, uh, it was quite interesting, uh, and it, it may be that it was... Uh, either conscious or subconsciously, an influence on the war doctor. Yes, everything uh, has its effect, doesn't it? So uh, it's interesting how ideas re-emerge sometimes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because uh, we know Stephen Moffat was a fan from when he was little. There's that, that picture of him when he was a little boy reading the Zabi or something, isn't it? Well, I think everybody of our generation, pretty much, nobody hated the show, no. did they? So... I mean, some people weren't allowed to watch it, and, mm. but uh, you know, if if you were given access to it, then you probably enjoyed it, unless you were really strange. Yeah. <laughs> I can't think of anyone that I was at school with who, at primary school at least, who didn't love Doctor Who. So, yeah, it was um, by the time uh, it was by the time it was sort of late eighties when I was at school. There wasn't there wasn't as many people watching it. But, no, no, it had sort of um, began to decline in popularity for all kinds of reasons that you could probably do a series of about 12 podcasts on yeah. if you put your mind to it. But um, yes, I mean, uh, 
But it's great to see how, how popular it is with kids again now. Yes, yes, it really is. Um, um, I was at a convention on Saturday uh, in Edinburgh, uh, it was um, Capital Sci-Fi Con, um, and Peter Capaldi was there. Ah, uh, yes, I've seen lots of pictures of that. And uh, did you get to see him perform Starman? Or no, I'd already left by then. Um, uh. but the the guy whose guitar it was, uh, he was um, he was dressed like um, like the Twelfth Doctor, um, sort of season series nine Twelfth Doctor. Um, and he was pretty good on the guitar himself. He had a little kind of amp around his waist, and he was uh, he was going around the convention. Uh, strumming out a few tunes, uh, but yeah, that was that was uh, a cool moment. I've seen the video a few times mm. uh, from different angles on Twitter, uh, but it was great to see a lot of a lot of kids there. Um, and Peter Capaldi was just brilliant with with kids. Uh, the people in front of me, there was um, I guess were brothers and sisters, about three kids, and he asked all their names and he did their autographs, and then remembered their names again for when they left, so you could say, "Oh, that is uh, a good trick." Yeah, he was sort of saying, "Oh, it was really nice to meet you." Um, I can't remember the names, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it was uh, yeah, he was, he was. I mean, he was great with everybody. He had some conversation with everybody that came up, uh, but he was he was particularly good with kids, and it's great to see kids kind of dressing up and engaging with it like that as well. Yeah, yeah, it's um, something very special, and these conventions and comic cons and things like that. It's a whole new dimension to the somewhat uh, pedestrian conventions that that I went to, although. Did meet some great guests in my time. But, yeah. Uh, didn't charge you for autographs back then either. You know, if you if you turned up to the convention, you could have an autograph. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 a bit different now. That the first one I went to was about 1996, and it was very different to the. And I didn't go to another one for years and years and years. And it is quite mm. different now. Uh, what was quite nice with Peter Capaldi it was it was 30 pounds for an autograph, but he was only charging kids 10 pounds. Oh, that's fair. Uh, which yeah. again was a really nice thing, I think. Uh, but he donated his entire, uh, he did all the money he made from autographs. He donated it all to charity as well, which was, uh, which was a, a great sort of gesture, I think, as well. Yes, I mean, yes. Some of the guests at these conventions, they do actually need it as a source of income, don't they? And you can't yeah. begrudge them. But uh, Mr. Capaldi's not going to be out of work anytime soon, is he? No, no, definitely not. Um, but uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a, it was a really good day, and uh, he, he stayed. I think it's supposed to wrap up about five o'clock, and apparently stayed till seven. Wow! He, he yeah, that is above and beyond. Yeah, I think just because he wanted everybody that wanted to meet him to be able to meet him, mm. he, he did about sort of a nine-hour stint with only like a fifteen-minute break. Wow! Um, and he was just kind of on form the whole time as well. He was uh, he was great. Well, I hope someone ordered him in a pizza at least. Blimey. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah hopefully. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a really good day. So I'd say anybody that gets the chance to go to a convention where Peter Capaldi is, they should definitely definitely get yes. the opportunity. I mean, I really do need to get myself on that. I do need to go to some conventions because it's been a long time. I used to go to the Leisure Hive conventions that used to be in Swindon. Right. Um, they were pretty cool you know they were um, mainly almost purely Doctor Who but uh, they had some other things going on as well and they had screening rooms so you know you'd find yourself on Sunday morning very hungover watching the time machine in a room in a conference room with 30 other strangers you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just uh that's what's nice about it was, them. You, you know, you've all got a common interest. It's very easy to strike up a conversation. Yeah. I just wish we had um, social media back then, you know, because you meet so many interesting people. And I was a girl at a convention as well, which is quite an unusual thing at that time. So you get like this sort of a bloke would want to sit down and very want to have breakfast with you because you're all staying in the hotel where the convention's being held. So you sort of have breakfast with a different bloke every morning and who knows what people would have been thinking about that. But, you know, there was nothing funny about it. <laughs> they just sort of shyly wanted to have breakfast with a girl, yeah. <laughs> even if it was me, you know. <laughs> so what sort of guests were around in those days? Um, well, a lot of the unit squad, so um, Nicholas Courtney and John Levine, and um, I met Ian Martyr a couple of times, oh, which was lovely. Yeah. Um, Colin Baker would come, mm -hmm. Trevor Martin, Peter Miles, 
Yeah. Um, let's see, Deborah Watling came along to one of them as well mm-hmm. and did a scream for everybody. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, so um, I never saw like the classics like Janet Fielding hitting people with her Mara sticks or anything like that. But uh, yeah. no, they were good times. And John Leeson was always lots of fun. And Matt Irving would do a presentation about special effects. And mm. so he'd be there in his shorts doing a slideshow, you know. Yeah. I got his uh, the, the Doctor Who special effects book. Uh, loved that when I was a kid. I think that's uh, Matt Irving, I'm sure, wrote that. Mm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's got it's got the Silurian head on the front of the book. I don't think I had that one actually. I mean, I had the cookbook and I had the pattern book. Yeah. <laughs> I had the Tardis technical manual, but uh, I loved the Tardis technical manual when I was a kid. Yeah. They, they had that in the school library, um, and uh, I'd never sort of said this is when I was about ten or eleven or something like that, and I'd never seen it anywhere else. Um, and uh, in my lunch times, I used to just sort of trace the things out of it to sort of make a copy of it. <laughs> to uh, so, so that basically, I'd have a copy of it, um, and then I just realised I could just—I I thought it was quite old and rare for some reason—and uh, then I just found that I could buy it quite cheaply, so uh, I just bought it. <laughs> mm, yes, I think it did make it to a few remaindered bookshops, but uh... Mm. Uh, yeah, I used to pour over all of those all the time when I was a kid. Yeah. We've always been well served as Doctor Who fans with books. I think we've got the apart from the novelizations, there's always been a, a huge amount of behind the scenes stuff. You know, even like sort of Terry Nations, the making of Doctor Who, uh, not Terry Nations, sorry, Terence Dix, the making of Doctor Who, and that kind of thing. Yes, yeah, but it's um, always been well documented from that point of view. Yeah, I think Doctor Who fans have got that interest as well, isn't they? Of uh, how things are, are put together and who writes them and. Yeah, and when they did um, the making of a TV series, which was, you know, pretty adult reference work. As, well, or was that, no, that was, um, there was the one that was about the visitation. That was the making of the TV series, wasn't there? And then there was that other one, which was quite an in-depth psychological the, um, academic work about kinder, when they were making kinder. Is that, I mean, uh, um, uh, the... The Unfolding Text. Is that that one? There's one that's, uh, that I think is like a really deep analysis like that. Yes, yeah. It's. Um, and then, there's, I, there's, is it the day, a day in the life of a producer or something? That's, oh, yes. Yeah, that was. A Turner thing about a, a Davidson story as well. Mm. And then, of course, in the modern era, we've got all the Doctor, well, we had Doctor Who Confidential and which was, the, the, you know, especially when it, it ran to 45 minutes, it was as long as the episode itself. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and it was mainly Karen Gillan saying how brilliant everything was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never liked to watch it right after the episode because there was too much of what you just watched because there was the clips from the, uh, the clips from the episode, so I'd always leave it a few days uh, to watch mm. it. Yeah, I mean, um, obviously I'm living with a not-wee, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, he doesn't have very much tolerance for the extras on the DVDs and things like that. So uh, I tend to um, I'll watch them the first time, but then I don't watch them again. Yeah. But I've got a whole load of new extras to watch when I get my Blu-rays. So. There's some great ones on the Blu-rays. Um, I've only got the season 19 one so far, but the uh, the uh, I think it's called Behind the Sofa. So it's a bit like Gogglebox, but with the Doctor Who cast watching the Doctor Who stories. They're great fun, really funny. Mm. Uh, new interviews and new making ofs and all that kind of stuff as well. So, yeah, really great stuff on there. And you've got all the stuff you've already got on DVDs as well. Yeah, so the only extras that I think David's got any time for is when they have the um, bits of Blue Peter yeah. on there. And they're always worth a watch, aren't they? Yeah, you get the, the Blue Peters or the, the swap shop and all that kind of stuff, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah so it shows how much more media training the actors get these days. <laughs> Especially the Tom Baker ones, he just looks like he wants to be anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> like he's hungover, it's far too early in the morning for him and, uh, you know, he's got a lunch date with um, Jeffrey Bernard or something like that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> 
just... which is fair enough because it helps to maintain the mystique, doesn't it? Yeah, that's it. You know, he wasn't Jeffrey from Rainbow; he was Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, just just there because he's contractually obliged. Mm. Well, well, thank you very much for joining me. Yes, thank you once again for uh, letting me back on your podcast. No, anytime. Uh, it's been really good. Um, I've enjoyed enjoyed all these stories. It's uh, it's lightened my commute a lot. It's far better than listening to the radio and hearing about the oh, terrible yes. state of politics. Um, so uh, yeah, hopefully, like I say, they'll do another volume and they'll keep doing the 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 regular Doctor Who annuals as well. Yes, that would be good. I'd be more than happy to listen to some more of that stuff, for sure. It's a lovely extra dimension. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Uh, So where can we find you on Twitter? I am at cupoftea69. Oh, actually, you should say you've got a Tumblr as well, haven't you? No, I haven't. No, no Tumblr. I've got a WordPress WordPress, um, blog, which is mainly my extremely dodgy poetry, but I'm actually working on a short science fiction story at the moment. So I'm hoping to get that to a point where I can put it up on the website sometime soon. There's a taster of it up already, but uh, having a go at doing some proper writing. Yeah, I'll put a link to the taster in the show notes. I really enjoyed it. That was excellent. Can't wait to read the full thing. All I've got to do is kill off a few more characters and then I'm done. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You can find me on Twitter as at Trap1 underscore. Um, You can like Trap1 on Facebook and you can find all the previous episodes, including uh, many that feature Denise, at trap1.podbean.com. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Bye.